From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Let's face it, they both know I'm really the only person who knows what I'm talking about. This system that we have at the moment is broken and it's breaking everyone. Uh, It's breaking the hearts of the Irish teachers, it's breaking my heart. So it's new order, but we want to use that and you use jump by the, yeah. Yeah, we do, yeah, yeah. And you use Pat's plan. The best combo, I think, yeah. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Hugh Wallace reveals his favourite Home of the Year judge. Should Irish be optional after the junior cert? And when contemporary dance meets the GAA? That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's trying to tell the player from the play. Bit of a highbrow gag there. Let's start Playback Daily today with some semi-monologue-like activity from the host of Oliver Callan, focusing first on getting the vote out for the upcoming referendums. Today is an important day in our little democracy because the the National Youth Council of Ireland is urging eligible young people to register their votes ahead of the uh, referendum. Well, we have lots of elections this year. We have um, local European elections, possibly a general election, but certainly a referendum, double referendum on the 8th of March. So the deadline to register for the referendums, or some people say referenda, but we don't speak Latin here, so uh, referendums, is at 5pm today. That is your deadline to register. They're urging young people to vote online the Youth Council says 730 so three quarters of a million people aged between 18 and 29 who are eligible to register to vote in Ireland they say most people they want to vote but not all of them are aware that you have to register you don't automatically get uploaded onto onto the polls onto the ballot uh, ballot papers so you have to do it so um, 70,000 young people turned 18 and became eligible to vote in just the last 12 months Indeed, I was in myself in the guard station uh, last week because it changed address with a pink form and it was all very efficiently done, sent it in, done. Uh, you're kind of shocked sometimes when the state systems tend to work or function. You're, you're kind of, you're geared up to complain. And then, it, oh, it's worked. Nothing I can do now. I just have to oh, it's, it's, accept that it's worked. Fine. I can't complain, can't ring Joe, nothing. So if you're unsure if you're, whether you're registered or not, particularly youngsters, uh, check the check the register.ie is the website. Check the register.ie. Uh, the process can be done online to register uh, where PPS number, date of birth, and the air code are required. So young people of Ireland, get yourself registered. Yeah, what he said. And speaking of young people. The Leaving Cert English syllabus for 2026 has been released and there are some surprises on this, I must say, because Greta Gerwig's blockbuster Barbie movie is going to be on the Leaving Cert. It took, of course, a record €10 million in box office receipts at Irish cinemas last year. That's just the Republic. Um, so it's there. No no Oppenheimer. It's Barbie that's in there. So it's going to be on the, the films. It's part of the selected novels, films, poems and plays that are required to be studied for the Leaving Cert English exam in 2026. Obviously, Barbie is on the film thing. Let's have a look and see what else is on there as well. So also Barbie has muscled out Lady Bird, also by Greta Gerwig and starring Saoirse Ronan out of the film studies. And so it was alongside Existing movies which have been there for years, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Shawshank Redemption, strange. Knives Out, I'm quite surprised that Knives Out is is there, sitting next to On the Waterfront. You know, it could have been a contender and all that. Uh, but also new, alongside Barbie, The Banshees of Inish Aaron by Martin McDonough. And his sort of, Martin McDonough, very influenced by John B. Keane. I'm beginning to think more and more after seeing Sive at the Gaiety Theatre. Uh, also new 
in the play section. So you've got the traditional ones there. Macbeth is back on the, um, you know, the rotation of the Shakespeare plays. 2026 will be Macbeth, which was on my own leaving search in 1999. That's 25 years ago. Chapers. Uh, so Bram Stoker's Dracula is brand new as a play sitting there next to Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad. It's obviously a novel been converted into a play. But Bram Stoker's Dracula, we were talking about with Dacre Stoker only here uh, very recently at Halloween. Uh, so Bram Stoker's Dracula is there. Uh, astonishing. Also nothing in Dublin named after Bram Stoker, which is his own, own disgrace. And Mike McCormick, Notes from a Coma, is in the novel slash memoir section of 2026. So that is for the class of twenty. 26 for the Leaving Cert studies. If only the world's lousy playwrights had written more dramas, we wouldn't have to resort to adapting all those novels into plays. Listen, if Colson Whitehead had intended the Underground Railroad to be a play, I reckon he would have written a play. Baffling. Anyway, on to more serious matters. The tooth fairies in the news around the place because the Wall Street Journal was reporting there recently that... Um, the gifts going to kids in America from the Tooth Fairy have become uh, mouth-watering, you could say. It would make your teeth fall out, to be honest. $100 bills and designer jewellery appearing under the pillow because the Tooth Fairy is obviously very, uh, very confident about Joe Biden's economy. And um, a poll there, well, they said the national average. So this is obviously exceptional, the Tooth Fairy for exceptional children, a massive immense of thing. The, na- the US national average is $6. It soared from $2 to $6. That is the hyperinflation that's happening over there uh, in less than 20 years. And the Tooth Fairy is generous. So that would be like over a fiver in Ireland. So the journal.ie, as they are wont to do, they run a poll on how much should the Tooth Fairy pay for a tooth in Ireland. The most popular answer was two to five euro in Ireland, followed by one to two euro. I think if you're getting into notes, you know, the Tooth Fairy, I think the Tooth Fairy can handle silver. It seems to be more in keeping with fairy tales and they start handing out five euro notes now. I think the Tooth Fairy needs to, needs to check the, the, the excess, what they're up to. Those crazy yanks, eh? Speaking of crazy, nostalgia-driven event TV continues its depressing march across our screens. And Celebrity Big Brother is coming back and it actually is starting very soon, less than two weeks. It'll be two weeks from uh, yesterday. And Louis Walsh is rumoured among the stars to be on. I'm reading here in the Irish Daily Star, Sandra Mallon um, says he is the favourite to be in Big Brother. But he has not confirmed it, Louis himself. He'd be an amazing gossip on Big Brother. Well, you're filmed all day long and then the editor put it out together, put it out in the evening time. I mean, like, I would, I would say a lot of Louis's you know, kind of conversations around the house would be quite unbroadcastable. You want to hear about this person? What I heard about that woman? She's unbelievable. It's a, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you the whole story. I know the full story. If we just, as I say, the lawyers would be all over. You just They would just end up with just footage of Louis walking around silently and uh, bleeping everything uh, he says. Not language-wise, just bleeping. Anyway, he's there. Um... Who else is going to be? Other rumoured celebrities include ex-Love Island, this person and somebody's wife. And that's where, OK, so it's going to be a virgin media. People I haven't heard of. don't know who those people are. But you will soon. That's the power of Big Brother. Yeah, right. Lots of musings on this morning's monologue, isn't there? Oliver even highlights some job spots. Uh, this is a job for someone. If you love museums, by the way, because two museum stories for you today. The Victorian Albert Museum is a fabulous museum in West London. And uh, they're looking for a lead catalogger um, for their David Bowie archive because the V&A is the family museums and they acquired the David Bowie archive which has 80,000 bits uh, from, from David Bowie's career 
and the archive is an important portrait of the most innovative and influential artists of our time. So they've costumes. Can you imagine the Ziggy Stardust costume? Staging models, because he designed a lot of stuff himself, and other performance artefacts, like his own photography, fan art that was sent to him and that he decided to keep for his whole career, musical instruments. Some of those have been sold. Yeah, I actually don't see Bowie stuff coming up for sale. Personal notes, sketches, designs, his song lyrics, sheet music writings, press coverage that he put together as well. Very interesting stuff that will tell us about the life and legacy of David Bowie. You'll earn between £32,000 sterling and £43,000 for this two-year contract, a fixed-term contract for 24 months, going through all of the David Bowie stuff. That would be a fierce, interesting job. Although, you know, after you go through 80,000 bits, you probably don't want to hear see or do anything about David Bowie. That's not, anyone who's a cataloger goes for those jobs, they're, they're passionate and obsessed, about, obsessed with their work. Another interesting museum story I saw this morning is uh, there's a woman, she's one of Italy's most unusual jobs. She has the task of dusting and cleaning the world's most famous statue, Michelangelo's David, the 17 foot tall star attraction of the Accademia Galleria in Florence, in Firenze. So two million people go through the doors last year and every year and they obviously contribute to the dust that swirls round and settles on the single block of white Carrara marble from which David was sculpted by the Renaissance genius or Renaissance between 1501 and 1504. Her name is Eleonora Pucci and she talks quite passionately. She says she feels overwhelming emotion and she did certainly the first time. She climbed the scaffolding that they put up when everyone leaves and came face to face with David to clean him. The museum was closed. There was complete silence. It is a feeling I have every time I embark on the cleaning process. I take more care of this artwork than I do of myself. David is more fragile than a person made of flesh and blood. Very Italian. Up close you can see the technique used by Michelangelo. The marks left by his chisel you enter into his mental process to be able to contribute. I don't know why this is turning into Penelope Cruz. <laughs> Apologies to Eleonora Pucci. She's, she's talking anyway that uh, it's nice to contribute even in a small way to the conservation of David's beauty making my job the best in the world. That's kind of amazing. And she photographs every inch of David, every inch, right, of the statue as part of the ongoing monitoring process, the checks for fractures or cracks because apparently there are little tremors under Florence all the time. But David is in rude health despite uh, being made from his block of Tuscan marble, not considered to be the highest quality. I didn't know that Michelangelo's statue, it was supposed to be on the buttresses of Florence's cathedral, but instead they they decided this is just exquisite work that they put it in the uh, most prominent square. And it remained there for eight, until 1873 it was outdoors and it was moved into the Galleria dell'Academia to protect it from the elements. So there, I saw it only last year. You can, you can drive into Florence on Sundays now. They have a ban the rest of the time. But you can do it. What a town. Get there before June before all of the crowds come and ruin everything. Lousy crowds ruining it for the rest of us. Hey, two museum stories for the price of one. What a monologue that was. Best leave it there while it's still flying high, eh? you might be wondering, is going to replace Stephen Kenny as manager of the Republic of Ireland's football team. What? Wasn't he let go ages ago, you're thinking? Surely they've replaced him by now. I'm afraid not, because it looks like the FAI are approaching the appointment of a new manager with their usual ruthless efficiency. This morning, Claire Byrne spoke to sports writer and podcaster at the 42.ie, Gavin Cooney, about, well, the list of people who seem to be not getting the job. 
Chris Coleman, like right up until last night, he was seen as a strong prospect, wasn't he? So what happened? Yeah, so um, uh, Lee Carsley, the England under-21 manager, has long been the FAI's first choice for this role to replace Stephen Kenny. There's been a kind of a Ross and Rachel from Friends vibe to that courtship. It seems that it's now not going to happen. Um, there seems to be an issue around money there, and Carsley has been telling people uh, privately for the last few weeks that he's out of the running. The FAI have hoped to resurrect that deal, but that prospect looks pretty remote at this point. So with Carsley off the table, another couple of names came to uh, came to the forefront of the public. Neil Lennon has has been one guy that's been long linked with the role, but he was told on Sunday that he was out. Uh, but it emerged on Sunday that Chris Coleman, the former Wales manager, is a contender. Now, Coleman has been in the mix all along. He's floated around in the betting lists and so forth without any really strong like links or reporting or anything suggesting that he was in the frame for the job. But that changed over the weekend. He emerged as a pretty strong candidate. Um, there had been a, shall we say, lukewarm reaction among the Irish public to that, it seems. Um, but, you know, it looked as of yesterday evening even that he was still a contender. Um, and just to give an indication as to how some journalists' careers may not survive this latest FAI saga, <laughs> uh, I did a, I was on a radio show last night with a, a journalist from BBC Wales and we were both talking about Coleman and how, yes, he's a contender, he's not a home run, but he's in the mix and talking about the pros and cons of appointing him. We went off there at 8 o'clock uh, and that BBC Wales journalist got a call from someone close to Chris Coleman to say, actually, he's now out of the running. So he was back on air at half eight to explain that Coleman now won't be the next Ireland manager. So, And was that, um, was that Coleman's decision? That's unclear. Okay. I, I do see the Irish Independent report today that it was Coleman's decision. Um, the BBC Wales couched it in. He, he is no longer in the running. I would personally be surprised if Chris Coleman withdrew from the process because, you know, he had been engaged with it up to this point. Um, one thing that maybe spooked him was the public reaction. His own son, uh, the creatively named Sonny Coleman, had been on Twitter engaging with Irish fans over the last two days who were critical and sceptical of, of his father's potential appointment. So I guess that's possible. But it, it also, Claire, it made no sense for the FAI to appoint Chris Coleman based off the job description that they have for the role. So Mark Canham is the director of football. He's leading this with the CEO, Jonathan Hill. And they have said that they want a modern, hands-on coach rather than an old-school manager because this coach can work and develop a, a style of play that can be replicated um, in the underage national teams. And Coleman had his qualities, but that is not one of them. You know, mm-hmm. he's not a traditional coach. So from that point of view, it actually made no sense that Coleman was in the running in the first place. So... Uh, unfortunately, I can't tell you who it is. I can tell you a few people who it won't be, uh, but we don't have clarity on yet. Well, look, it's just, as I say, it's stretching on now for 90 days and the impression is being given, rightly or wrongly, that there have been a certain number of candidates who've been approached and, and haven't wanted the job. So what's the problem? Is it the job in, in and of itself and the where our, the Irish team currently stands? Or is it the job description, as you've just outlined, which is unappealing? A job description may be unappealing to some people, but, you know, on the converse, it would fit some people as well. But trying to find a young and up-and-coming and exciting coach, it's tough to do that at international level because the club game is where the money is, really, relative to the international game. And that's where the exciting young coaches want to work. And I think some people that the FAI would love to have appointed have, would would prefer to stay in club football. There is also the wider issue that 
not every international job is appealing, but a lot more of them are more appealing than the Irish job. And I don't think that it's disrespectful to say that we have some very talented players in the squad, most obviously Avon Ferguson, but we don't have a very talented team. And the results under Stephen Kenny and even before that bear that out. So, I mean, would a manager want to come and uh, because they would be coming to the work for the FAI to improve their own reputation and they may just coldly calculate that actually, is that likely with this bunch mm. of players? And also with the FAI, I mean, again, I don't want to be too disrespectful here, but there's certainly no halo effect in operation of the FAI. It's not like if, if you're a young coach, you go off and work for Belgium or Croatia or even England, you'd say down the line, a, ch- a football chairman might say, well, I don't know if he's any good, but sure, if you work for them, he must be good. That's not an operation of the FAI at the moment. It might be down the line, but it's not the reality at the moment. Neil Lennon wanted the job, didn't he? Neil Lennon, yeah, he did. He was, in fairness, in, in a process that has been cloak and dagger and all kinds of conflicting information. Neil Lennon has openly talked about wanting the job um, in as many appearances as a TV pundit, but it seems that the FAI don't want him. They definitely mm-hmm. interviewed him. I think they may have spoken to him twice. Again, there was a very lukewarm public reception to the prospect of Neil Lennon. And also, Claire, he didn't fit the job description really. You know, again, he's more of a, he's seen, certainly from the people I've talked to in the game, he's seen as more of a kind of an old school manager. So it may be the case then that the FAI and all of this has been fairly closely guarded, but they might just have an ace up their sleeve. But as time goes on, they'd want to be putting the cards on the table pretty soon. Correct, yeah. So they have, I mean, the search has been very wide. I mean, we reported yesterday that they had spoken to the former New Zealand manager uh, and a former United States assistant manager, Anthony Hudson. They spoke to him twice uh, and he was. they told him on Sunday that they wouldn't be progressing any further with him. I find that interesting just because I hadn't a clue who he was. So it just goes to show that there is a a wide search and it does leave the possibility that 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 ace is up the sleeve. And now it's... My understanding is that's been Mark Cannon's attitude around the Abbottstown office to people naturally asking him, just this sense that just wait and see, will we have something that will pleasantly surprise you up our sleeve. But again, while they've been, it has been a closely guarded secret, um, what, is, uh, what is probably obviously not ideal, while, we, while that candidate might still emerge, Claire, it should, they should have emerged by now. Same as it ever was. Sports writer and podcaster Gavin Cooney talking to Claire this morning about the FAI's so far fruitless search for someone to manage the Irish football team. While the government giveth and the government taketh away. On the day that the announcement was made of almost €1 billion in funding for mostly Northern Ireland-related projects, Alison spoke to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline about what Joe called a mean-spirited cutback. Unfortunately, the breast cancer patients, um, their allowance has been cut and it's, it's just unreal. It's, well, tell us about the allowance, tell us who gets um, it, how you get it, what it was uh, and what they announced today. They didn't announce it. Was, it. It slipped in, of course. But it, what, yes. What, what happened? Well, usually, uh, Joe, after the ladies have surgery, whether they have a medical card or whether they're private, they're entitled to um, a fitting of two bras uh, and a prosthesis or two prosthesis if they've had both breasts removed. And in a lot of the country, they were giving uh, also swimwear um, and swimming prosthesis so the ladies could go swimming, which is obviously very good for their, um, you know, after they're getting lymph nodes removed so it's stopped. After after the medical trauma, the emotional trauma, the psychological trauma, the government 
up to today, how much were they giving to these women to help them buy some new uh, underwear primarily that would uh, facilitate their 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 uh, new position so to far so to say the the ladies were only getting two two bras two prosthesis um or one prosthesis and now they have cut it back to one bra to the value of 60 euros if it's any more than that if they wanted something fancier they have to pay the additional cost but to give a lady one bra after losing her breast i mean uh, not only is there risk of infection they'll have an open wound they also want uh, the ladies to be fitted for their first fit in the hospital which is ridiculous because the the breast care nurses, and I mean, they are absolutely wonderful, but they are on top of their head um, up there. And to have ladies up there for fittings, to bring them back six weeks after surgery when they usually recommend that they're fitted for their proper prosthesis. It's ridiculous. And not only... It's a the way I feel, Joe. It's a look good, feel good. Of course. Um, these ladies course. are very, very vulnerable, and they need to come to a, a place like that does specialised underwear, and that they're treated. You know, can bring their friend or their family member, have a cup of tea, have a chat, have a hug, yeah. come in and see a selection. So, what was up the, to today? What was the allowance? The up to today Finan- um, financially, a, financially. Financially, um, it it did vary in different uh, counties all along, which was seemed absolutely ridiculous. And I did think if the government were going to bring in anything, they were going to just do it across the board, that these ladies would be entitled to everything. But now the government have actually cut it in half. And can I just say that the ladies who would have um, gone through reconstruction surgery, which... A lot of the time it is mm-hmm. fantastic. But women, uh, everybody changes body shape. And some of these reconstructions, uh, they, they need slight enhancements. So they need maybe a partial prosthesis or yeah, yeah. a prosthesis with a nipple or they, you know, they need yeah. proper fitting underwear to lift the other breast, you know, because they may be given a perkier breast after surgery. Now, don't get me wrong, surgery has moved on, but there's a lot of these ladies that are going to really be affected by this okay. mentally. Just, just come back, and Alice, I'm sorry for confusing with Caroline because Caroline is, is on the other line. I'll go to Caroline in a few minutes. I need to get yeah. I need to do something else. I mean, but um, Caroline is, is contacted us as well. She's making the exact same point, and she's livid. She's absolutely livid. Now, how much is, uh, as of yesterday, so to speak, how much when, when the state uh, said to women who went through this this uh, trauma, this operation, uh, post-surgery, how much was that, the, the, two, the two bras, the swimming prosthesis and the swimming outfit, how, how much was that worth, Alison, before today? It's, it's, it's half the amount. It's even less than half the amount. So they've halved, and, uh, they've halved yes. the little grant they were giving yes. to women. Yes. Today, today, today a, they've yes. halved the grant yes. that they're giving and to women have been through mastectomies. Yes, and now I, I thank, I'm a cancer survivor myself, but okay. I do know how that you feel when your body is changes yeah, okay. and you, how important it is okay. to wear the correct underwear. And now I also, I also presume, Alison, sorry for rushing, but I also presume the cost of this underwear has, is going up rather than down. Exactly, Everything and the, go, the, the state have up. decided that the maximum, the maximum it's they will give euro. is sixty euro per year. Yes. 
For one bra. That's for one bra. That's a euro I mean, a euro a week to a woman who's had a mastectomy to try and help her. It's not just the physical, it's the mental and to lose for a lady to lose their breast or both breasts is devastating. And uh, I just I don't see the logic in this. I assure you to God with cancer getting worse and with it you know it's affecting every family unfortunately. There's somebody out there that knows somebody that's going through breast cancer or other types yeah. of cancer. And surely to God, they should come first. Their mental health is going to suffer from this. These ladies are, are told to swim because yeah, it, it will actually brilliant, brilliant. prevent lymphedema. Yeah. And now they've taken the swimsuit away from them. The justifiably angry Alison talking to the also angry Joe Duffy about government cutbacks to grants for breast cancer patients on this afternoon's Live Line. Home of the Year is back for its 10th season tonight on RTE TV and the three fussy judges, Amanda Bone, Hugh Wallace and Sarah Cosgrove, joined Oliver Callan in studio this morning. Oliver turned first to the person who's been there since the beginning, Hugh. It's just been wonderful. What a journey. And all those fellow judges. It's just amazing. And now I have these two, <laughs> you know? I mean, really. Your favourite? You know, Mo. Come here, and you're one at the, the end now. Yeah, she's the best. Why am Amanda's I the best. The best. In the Sarah house. is yeah. sitting. Yeah. yeah, come on. Where's your whistle? Where's your whistle? Get out the whistle. I need whistle. my whistle. She Let's, needs her whistle. I actually have a whistle. She Sarah does, yeah. is right there, and you just said Amanda's your favourite judge. <laughs> That's <Who>? okay. <laughs> who, me? Well, let's face it, they both know I'm really the only person who knows what I'm talking about. Oh, you see, that's oh, the whole dear. problem. That's the go. whole problem. This is... White, white, white. It's all the same. You know, there one chair and white. Pattern, pattern, pattern. Let, I know, let's ruin a room. Let's ruin a room. A colour right. that doesn't match. Sorry, I have to else. go Claire Byrne here. I like one voice at a time, please. Okay. <laughs> Now, I would go back to you as the senior person. So you've dispensed with the other judges. I've dispensed with the other judges. It's just fabulous. I mean, when what, what amazes me is if somebody describes the house, I can go, I remember that. And, and I, I've done mm. 225 homes between Home of the Year and Celebrity Home of the Year. So, but it's an amazing journey. And the three of us are like, Giddy kids. We've, we've gathered that well, already. No, no, we? When you arrive up at a house yeah. and we're not allowed in, so we all stand Ooh. outside in the weather with the wind and the rain <laughs> and these two in skimpy little outfits. You know, I love that. Shocking. Do you know? And, and there we are freezing to death. And then yeah, we yeah. open the door and it's amazing because more than likely when you walk through the door, it's completely different. Absolutely. Isn't that right? Completely different to what you're expecting. Yeah, when you're absolutely. Outside. That's what's wild. Never mind the skimpy outfits. Maybe if you wore your jumper instead of around your shoulders, you know, if it's cold, you might be cold. No, but I, I love my little jumpers. You know, I think they bring a bit of colour. Like do. my glasses. You know, you need to bring the glasses with a bit of colour. And you've changed your glasses this season, I noticed. I do, yes. I've gone for the red. The red, red now. yeah. I thought you colour coordinated your glasses. I do, with yeah. Your I have blue, you see, I have blue, green, black, and red. Yeah. So it depends on what I'm For wearing. For season 10. Yes. My Because <laughs> I've seen the first episode, I've got <gasps> the exclusive viewing. Yes. And I noticed you're wearing different glasses during the judging bit where you're. Where is that bit at the end where you're all in a room? In Palmerston House. Yeah. Oh, very nice. And okay, we have so a great Different time. glasses for period yeah. properties. Now, that's yeah. the highlight. Isn't that right? That's the highlight of the show 
because that's the first time that we get to know which houses are in which episode. Are yeah. in which episode. So oh, we have right. the Okay, so you're filming it out of sequence. Totally. Yeah. So each house is independently judged. You, you know, it's Very not like gosh. you're comparing it against the house you saw or home you saw the day before. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, as Hugh says, we get so little information. And, and Sarah, what's the gap between seeing the house and then doing all the judging? It might be two weeks. Three. Oh, no more. Okay. It's really tight, the schedule. Yeah. In fact, it was a week this year. Yeah. And But Amanda, we all arrive and that's a day of delight and disappointment. Wouldn't that be fair? Because houses that you really want to get through don't. Don't make the grade. Yeah. Because, yeah, we don't know which houses are up against each other. So you're unfurling the scroll and suddenly you could find, as has happened to me on many occasions, your three favourite homes of this series yeah. are all in the one episode. It's also when we... Oh, right. That's a huge thing, yeah. then, isn't it? So you're thinking these are going to be, yeah, going to make the final. And but only one of them two. can, yes. If you eliminate yeah. two of them. And then it's kind of devastating and you're trying to then wait. You, you're, we've got that same anticipation because you don't know what your fellow judges... And <clears throat> I always give the analogy... When I moved back from London, it was the one show I really did watch and mm. I would be shouting at the television, <laughs> how did you give that home a seven? Now I'm in the room shouting at him, how did you give that a seven? It is <laughs> he's like, still not answering. <laughs> he's still like... Uh, so you've, you're like the rest of us, you were a fan, and but, except you're fan. now a judge. And, and and now, you were working at Harrods, is that correct? In, yes, in London? Okay. for five and a half years I've had a design there, so that was interesting. So a bit of a change Interesting. Good. Oh yeah, just fascinating. I mean, the Harrods is its own planet, and yeah. I was on Planet Harrods for five and a half the years. The uber wealthy are coming in. Yeah, are they just very international, and a lot of big characters like the show. So I was <laughs> feeling right at home at home. With the I'd year. say the characters are slightly bigger coming to Harrods for interior design, maybe than than anything we could imagine. So, what's your home like? Oh, okay. it's a home, Amanda. Uh, uh, there are things in it so you wouldn't like it. <laughs> and your red spot? Oh, the red spot is right here, of course. Oh, sure, sure. Have you seen? You've seen the first episode. I've seen the first episode, and there are what quite a think? couple of surprises in it. Because, uh, and actually, the, the, there's a lovely house in the west of Ireland with, which has a swimming pool outside. Oh, yeah. But there's a huge kitchen di- dining area. The first thing I said was, I don't like the colour of the kitchen. And Amanda. Yes. I told you. I'm on, a, I'm on the track. The oh. green, the green. The green was fabulous. You know, it was yeah, a beautiful. We loved it. it wasn't a fantastic. Yeah, we exactly. loved it, didn't He's we? Team Amanda Hughes. Yeah, yeah. Team Amanda Boo. Team Amanda Boo. <laughs> anyway, uh, Dem- Amanda is called Demanda Amanda. Is that right? That's, Demanda yeah. Amanda. Demanda Hugh. Amanda, isn't that right? Liking this. You see? Yeah. Liking this too much. Actually, the swimming pool, which was outside, I have a clip here of the, the reaction of the oh. judges to the swimming pool uh, to show the level of energy continues, whether it's half nine in the morning or whether you're out in the west of Ireland. The favourite spot? And at the swimming pool, no less. What a favourite spot. Oh my goodness, this is stupendous. I'm, I'm actually quite speechless. Amazing having a pool in your own house. Put your sauna there, you can do your stretching and exercises, jump into the pool. Must be just extraordinary. How refreshing. I wish That's I'd me, know. you see, I'm doing that stretching and yoga. And, and Amanda's moment. doing her length. He's yes. even talking over Amanda's bit there where you were talking about oh, you were going to get right. your togs. No, it was just oh. beautiful. I actually... <laughs> 
nowhere to lie. I we think if all... you had had your tugs, would you would have got it. Would was, have got it was pretty amazing. I, I had my onesies. I should <laughs> you know have brought my onesies. What was particularly beautiful oh, about God, that pool is they had a, a boundary wall built around their garden separating from the burren, but where the pool was located, they had omitted the boundary wall and they just had a glazed screen so that if you were swimming in the pool doing your lens, you had a clear view out of the fields. There was nothing blocking your line of vision. Yeah. And I thought that detail was particularly lovely. Yeah, it was lovely. Now, it, it's actually an unusual episode because you have this kind of what we would consider the traditional home of the year, uh, you know, mo- modern home. Modern. Yeah, modern home in the West of Ireland. And then it's up against the schoolhouse, a converted schoolhouse in the West Coast. And I would have thought, well, Amanda's going to hate this. I know. She's going to hate this house. But the thing about home of the year is I'm an architect, but I have to, it's not about architecture. So I have to try and leave that at the door. And I, sometimes I don't. It all depends on the home itself. Mm. But I judge a home on how it makes me feel on that particular day. Right. And when we were standing there, it's just, it, it was just so uplifting. It, it was just so calming. It was... It was, it was actually overwhelming and that's because of the space, of the, you know, of the design of the home itself. And also I felt that the homeowners really matched or well suited their home. They understood the type of home that they had and, and you know, they made the most of it and they yeah. pushed its qualities. It just felt so authentic. It felt absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's, it's a good start because you've got the modern one, you've got the kind of older style one and the one in between. So it's very hard to figure out which one you all go for. And we can't obviously reveal, no, but, but it's, it's something for everyone. But isn't, yeah, that's what I love yeah. about it. Yeah. I'd look at it as a half hour family romp, yeah. <laughs> you know, where if you don't like one home, you like the other. Yeah. And that's what's fabulous about the show. And it's sort of over before it's begun. The inimitable Hugh Wallace there, who was talking to Oliver, along with his fellow judges Amanda Bone and Sarah Cosgrove, about the new series of Home of the Year, which premieres tonight on RTE TV and the RTE Player. Last December, in Dublin Airport, a 70-year-old woman met her brother for the first time. Today with Clareburn reporter Evelyn O'Rourke brought us this remarkable story this morning. I love the story. I spotted a video that was on the Dublin Airport Facebook page where they talk to people about why are you here, right? And they feature different stories. And I was really struck by this woman, Claire. And we were laughing at the red coat and we'll talk about that later. But she told the team there that the reason that she was at Dublin Airport that day was to meet her brother for the very first time. He's called Michael or indeed Mac as she calls him. So here to start, Claire, is a little video of the, um, the video that Claire did at the airport arrivals area on 22nd of December. So this is her talking in the arrivals, the original video that I saw before she meets her brother, Mac. My name is Claire. I'm from Rush and I'm here to meet my birth brother, whom I have never met. I only contacted him by chance this year. And he is based in New Zealand, but flying from Dubai this evening to see me. I was adopted as a baby as a few months old. Mac was born in Ireland, but taken away by our birth mother. He's four years younger than me and we've been in contact on the phone ever since, but we've never actually met. He said, how will I know you? He said, I'll have an All Blacks t-shirt and a cap. <laughs> Just can't believe it's happening. Excited, nervous, emotional. At 70 years of age, I just can't believe it. <laughs> Lots of laughing. So he's flying in from New Zealand and on the video you see the emotional reunion and then Max spoke to them about his joy really being back in Ireland, meeting his big sister Claire for the very first time. So I followed up after that interview. I went to visit Claire at her lovely family home and rushed to hear all about it. So here you're going to hear the next part of that video, right, which is Max standing there, Claire teasing him as only siblings can and then Claire talking to me at the kitchen table about her story. Uh, tired. 
elated, very, very happy. Yeah, I'm shaking at the moment. I just don't know what to say, really. It's been a long few months, eh? Yeah, I feel I've known him all my life. Two minutes. Yeah, mind you, we have been talking a lot. Yeah, been, I... I've been listening a lot. <laughs> I'm your bigger sister, just remember that, okay? <laughs> so, Claire, we're sitting here at your table and you have piles of papers, right? These are all the documents that tell the story of your life. You always knew you were adopted. Or did you? Oh, I did. From the time I came here. So we're in the house that you grew up in. There's a photograph of the day I came out. Some of the, the dates are mixed up here because... But you were roughly what age when you were adopted? 15 months, I think. So what happened between when you were born and the 15 months? My birth father's mother took me to look after me. And then it turned out that she couldn't look after me anymore. So I went to a foster home. They were called nurses in Cabra. And from Cabra... I was taken to St. Bridget's Orphanage on Eccles Street. And from Eccles Street, I was brought out here. Wow. Mm. Um, the family connection then and the search that Claire and her siblings have been working on, this all started, as so many of these stories do now these days, with mm. a DNA test, a regular DNA test for a family tree service. Yeah, I mean, you hear about it more and more that people are getting their DNA tested, you know, with these ancestry and heritage sites. And it's throwing up some fascinating results. So in Claire's case, she'd grown up in a really loving family home there in Rush, the home where she lives with her wonderful family today. She's been married to the lovely Bob, who was potting around in the background there for decades, Lovely, gorgeous family, three beautiful grandchildren, Annabelle, Connor and Anna. But she said she always knew she was adopted. But then one of her cousins encouraged her recently to take one of these DNA tests. And she came back as a match with a woman called Bernadette in England, right? She contacted Bernadette, who had amazing news for her. They were sisters, but not only that, she told Claire that they had a brother. Claire's natural mother had died, I think, around 1988. So the secrets have gone to the grave with her. But here, Claire picks up more of that story. In recent years, my cousin Suzanne, it was her who got me to do it. I did um, a DNA test. We sent off with them and did the thing and they went off to America. So when the results came back from that, it came up back that I had a half-sister called Bernadette. So I contacted her and she told me that she had found a brother. She always knew she had a brother, a brother called Michael. Now, as it turned out, that was last October, 12 months. But the summer before that, they both met up with all our Kerry family. I always knew my mother was from Kerry, but he was known about by the family because he stayed with our birth mother until he was 16. So she gave me up first. Yes. Then Mac, Michael, was born four years after me. Then she had Bernadette and gave Bernadette straight up for adoption. So the two girls were given up for adoption. The two girls were given up and Michael stayed with her until he was 16. So he joined the British Army and he ended up getting married to an English girl and moving to New Zealand. Bernadette so. knew that she was adopted and she'd always known she had a brother, but she yes. didn't know about you. No, nobody knew about me. Nobody at all. You're sitting here today and you've got a folder full of paperwork here. Hold on one sec. So on the 14th of August, 10 days after I was born, I was called Claire McCarthy. And I have my birth father's address because apparently my birth father's mum took me back to her house to look after me for a while before I was put into foster care. So when you got in touch with Bernadette, this was new for her? Yes, yeah. So then you met him, and this yeah. was when you were in Dublin Airport at Christmas? Yes. And you were standing there in your red coat, which has become very famous. <laughs> Talk us through that moment. It was brilliant. Well, I had been speaking to him on the phone before that, and we got on absolutely fantastically. Just felt like I'd always known him, and he was the same. We just clicked straight away. with the same personality, same way of going on. Talk crap, and <laughs> just... Just it's just easy from the because I saw the video easy. of the hug, like the hug is beautiful. 
very easy. He was more emotional than I was. But obviously he travelled from Dubai that day. But no, we had a lovely few days together and we keep in touch and hopefully that'll last. And he's talking about coming back to Ireland to retire in the next 12 to 18 months. And he'd be with his family then. So to recap on all of that, Claire's mother gave birth to her, gave her up for adoption and now these three siblings have found each other. Yes, and discovered a whole other family as well. Family cousins in Kerry, who they say have been wonderful, welcomed them all with open arms. It's been a really positive experience for them. But I think the reason that this story was so interesting too and really struck me is that Claire was one of the kind of first adopted people I've kind of seen in action who gained information through the new Birth Information and Tracing Act of 2022. Obviously, you've covered this on the show so much, but as we know, it came into force over a year ago. It gives adopted people the right to access records. So once Claire had started doing her digging, she had contacted the adoption Authority of Ireland to get her file. Now that's when she did hit a barrier. It took months and we'll come back to that in a minute. But first I wanted to find about, out a bit more about the situation for adopted people since the Act has come in. As we hear that people are and were having a difficult time maybe gaining access to their files with both Tusla and the Adoption Authority of Ireland managing them. And advocates in this field, they're growing increasingly frustrated they say. They say that people are getting in touch with them saying that there are delays and that there are ongoing gaps in information. So Susan Lowen is the co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance along with her colleague Dr Claire Miguel born Lorraine Hughes and Susan Lowen told me more about the experiences people are having and telling her about and gaps in some of the records. Clearly you know birth certificate is all important but what most people might not realise is that it doesn't include the father's, the natural father's name. Uh, it might not include your natural mother's address, the, the place where you were conceived, where your family so members live. Do you think live. sometimes applicants are expecting X and when Y comes that adds to all this? Most definitely, because as Claire Gettrick has you know, expressed this so well, most of us adopted people do not realise why we are the people we are today. So in Claire's expression, she said, why is she Claire McGettrick? Why is she not Katrina Palmer, another well-known adopted person? We have no idea the selection process, if, if there were a process per se, that went on. Why were particular adoptive parents chosen? Why did I end up in Dublin? Why did I not end up in Cork? And so forth. Why, if my natural mother had other children... Why were they not placed with me? Why was I not placed with them? These are really fundamental questions which would uncover a lot of the, you know, the very negative things, like social engineering, basically, that happened to children born out of marriage, you know, for decades. And the state has been warned for at least two decades, and I can can say that with hand on heart, because Adoption Rights Alliance have been telling them that there's a pent-up demand for this information. They are well aware of it. They used to report this fact in the annual report of the Adoption Authority of Ireland. So we see it every day on the comments in our Facebook groups, you know, in our emails, that people say, look, we parked our cynicism. And once again, we are disappointed. Susan Lowen, co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance, from Evelyn O'Rourke's report on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. There was some dancing on the radio this afternoon when Ray Darcy was joined by dancer and choreographer Nora Nianlu and Faye, who's come up with a show that combines contemporary dance with Gaelic games. Yes, you heard that right. The show was called Ham Sandwiches and Discipline. So your memory of the GAA, Ham Sandwiches. 
I think it's a pinnacle of the GA. Like those kind of days in Crow Park, you've got the tin foil and the sandwich that's just there. They're kind of it's bitter cold. You've got big coats on. Yeah. And that kind of visceral sound of, of the tin foil. It's just so part of that kind of growing up nature with the Are GA. Are you a butter, butter person? Would it be butter on the ham sandwiches? I think so. I think you yeah. need something, even a bit of mayo or anything, just to kind of keep it going. Yeah. Help now, you what's along. your club and your family's club? We're a big Kula family. Right. Yeah. We've that's got, a big club. It's really a big club. It feels like a big kind of legacy kind of club in that way. Because my yeah. brother plays hurling there as part of it. But we've right. kind of grown up with it as well. So they're doing really so well in the hurling. Oh, they're the absolutely years. fabulous. Like, they're they're all so Ireland good. champions. And, I know. Yeah. Like some like many years in a row as well. Yes, they, yeah. They're on a roll for a good while. Yeah. And it's even the picture for the for the poster here was like one day I went to Hyde Park at the kind of the park there and just had to lie back in the cooler pitch in the mud and that felt like so GA put the legs up get the sandwiches going take the picture <laughs> felt like the kind of epitome of what the GA yeah. is in a way What's your first memory of going down to Kula as a child? I think Crow Park is more the kind of the, the original memory I'd have there yeah, of that kind yeah. of sacred space even going in the primary school you'd go to see the school matches there but even watching at home as well we'd have kind of big roast dinners on Sundays and watch the match there with the kind of my, my dad and my granddad coming over as well we'd always it was like it was a big moment always the Sunday games yeah exactly yeah. and the kind of the iconic voices of it and the kind yes. of the rhythms and the ritualistic element of it it's a sacred place really and, and that's where the inspiration came from not yeah. looking at a match but looking yeah. at the punditry <laughs> yeah and the kind the most amazing person Pat Splan I think in the world right. I think is the pinnacle of where the piece came from in a way I was watching I think two three years ago now at this point watching Sunday game my family and I was looking at his hand and they were just so incredibly animated <laughs> and they were so huge and camp and exaggerated and I was like that there's something there and I was like I need to make a piece about that I didn't know what exactly it was so I was like there's something there and I'm almost like that's the first thing you'll do after college make that piece right. and it was kind of from there now it's created this whole kind of world we have all these characters the kind of players the mammies the managers the coaches and um, the kind of the pundits afterwards as well and it's creating this whole world around Irishness and disco and campness all through the GA. Right so uh, it's you dancing with... Yes, it's um, a good friend of mine, Ben Sullivan. He's an incredible dancer. We met when we were kind of 15, 16, 16 working in Cush came together. So right. we've kind of grown up and then we went to college together in Fonties University in Tilburg, Netherlands as well. So we've kind of seen each other grow up through dance and uh, his sister plays in Dublin team as well. So there's a there's a, a connection there. We get it through dance and we get it through this, the kind of love of the sport as well. Uh, and both of you play all the parts of the players, Yes, the so it's a two-hander the... with us. Right, so we have okay. amazing costumes kind of done by Kitty O'Brien and Jack Pierce. all Right. kind of NCD graduates and they're these amazing things they've created I gave them such wild and wacky briefs of kind of what I was going for and then they just delivered so amazingly so for example with the, the players they're all kind of based on 80s silhouettes of the jerseys and they're done by we made our own kind of clubs and teams with it so right. each have their own crests and made picked their own colours for the club as well but then the umpires we've created this amazing kind of feathered shoulder pads like the Hawkeye and these kind of paddy cap headpieces with feathers coming out and right. the managers I have them here of course Hawkeye yes yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> But there are these. They were, the brief I gave them was kind of mega mind, kind of um, evil Knievel, yeah. um, Wolverine as well, and kind of Doc Brown from, from and uh, Back to the Future and everything. These kind of wacky things, but they made some incredible things from them. And and it's it's on in uh, Smock Alley Theatre, twenty second, twenty third of February, which is yes. which is this week, isn't it? Yes, uh, it's yeah, part this of the Scene Heart Festival. Yeah, and I, I've done a little mix for you, right? I don't, oh, you're I don't, too yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, me now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have a listen to this. See what you think. So so it's new order, but we want to use that, and you use yes. Jump by the. Yeah. yeah, we do. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you use Pat's plan. Oh, the best yeah. combo, oh, I think. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so here, see what you think of this. Okay. And I just ask myself the question, the question, the question, the question. What sort of a game do we want? What sort of a game do we want? Tyrone 
There you have it. Any more, I'd have to charge you. Oh, that's absolutely fabulous. I'm going to get on the team now. I think you're part of the piece now as well. I feel like I'm in it. Yeah, that's amazing to hear. Yeah. So so you have the punditry recordings of that going in the yes, background. Yes, yes. We've mixed it kind of with techno music and yeah. then disco music as well with it. So it's kind of bringing these two worlds together that aren't always kind of seen. Yeah. Of kind of disco and fun and kind of theatricality there. Because I think matches and kind of those spaces are such theatrical places. Like these kind of 30 people in costumes, colourful paint and everyone watching this marathon of emotions that kind of interval break yes. for half time and the commentary after it getting your tickets kind of getting the snacks for it so it would feel like the perfect place for a piece but it is like when GA is played at its best it's nearly oh, yeah. like ballet isn't it oh completely I yeah. think it's that exactly kind of dream ballet is one of the sections in it kind of we took it from um, the Barbie movie actually kind of the dream ballet of the Kens when they sing I'm just Ken that kind of madness and that whimsy of it we have a section using kind of the most iconic quotes from kind of Pats Valan and ones from going to matches I, I kind of take any quotes I can find and made this kind of dream sequence right. of a dream ballet with the GA. Yeah. Uh, never before seen anywhere. Uh, I think, yeah, <laughs> world debut premiere. Yeah. GA meets contemporary dance. <laughs> Dancer and choreographer Nora Nyonlu and Faye talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about her new contemporary dance GA-centric show, Ham Sandwiches and Discipline. The show can be seen, as Ray mentioned, in Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin on Thursday and Friday this week as part of the theatre's Seen and Heard Festival 2024. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, Claire Byrne waded fearlessly into the muddy waters of compulsory Irish for the Leaving Cert. Claire asked Barbara Ennis, principal of Alexandra College in Milltown, Dublin, and Julian Despawn, Conor Nagelga General Secretary, why Irish should or should not be made optional after the junior cert. Claire started with former Irish teacher Barbara. I think it's one of the potential solutions to the debacle that we have at the moment around exemptions where, you know, the students go into fifth year and they realise it's a points race and that they have to be strategic about the subjects they choose, the levels they choose. And there's a conflict always between Irish and maths. Um, And because maths has 25 extra points attached to it um, at higher level, you know, if there's a choice between those two subjects, the girl, in our case, the girls will always go for maths. And then, you know, Irish becomes a kind of an irritant and they want to get rid of it out of their lives. They don't want to do ordinary level. They just want to not do it at all. Mm-hmm. So there's been a huge deluge of requests this year uh, coming into me for exemptions from Irish. There's an awful lot of paperwork around it. And um, we need to think creatively about how we manage the whole situation because okay. we're not. So, so if we were to look at this option and we are only looking at, at it as, as an option, you'd opt in then after your junior cert to do Irish onto the leaving cert? Well, that is one of the suggestions, yes. And it's a suggestion that I believe was made recently on another radio show um, and the example of Wales was given where that's what happens and there are no problems with the language in Wales. Uh, it's still continuing to thrive and there's a very strong educational policy to try and increase the number of 
all Welsh-speaking primary schools, and I think we're going the same way here in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the students who are coming into secondary school are fluent in Irish now, which is absolutely great. And they, they, you know, they would absolutely not dream of not doing Irish for okay. first. Well, let's uh, hear what Julian has to say about this. I mean, the example from Wales seems to be a, a very positive one. Why wouldn't we make it an opt-in after junior cert? First of all, can I say that I can understand that Barbara's feeling a huge amount of frustration um, because of the change in the system in 2019 that the decision for exemptions to be made is made by the principals now. It's not with a psychologist's report. So that gave them a huge extra burden that they have to look to. And you know, many parents would you know, be, um, you know, certainly maybe pressure or maybe, may, may, may and that's all going on to the principal now. So it's a, an extra burden that should never have been given. There should have been a different system in its entirety put in place. And I can come back to that in a second. But when it comes to the Wales system, it's a completely different system when you get up to A level. You The, the students generally choose maybe three subjects um, that they'll do till A level. And if you were to do that, and what they do in Wales and in the North, for example, is that all of a sudden maths or English also wouldn't be uh, compulsory going on to the A-levels as well. And we actually had, um, there was, the NCCA did uh, a consultation on this over a number of years recently on the senior cycle, whether we should reduce the amount of subjects that we have for Leaving Cert. And the findings were, and what they reported back was, no, uh, what we should do is introduce more uh, subjects. So they're actually doing that at the moment. So they didn't say to reduce the subjects. Because we provide, and we have a very good education system as a whole in terms of what we provide and what employers, I suppose, see um, in the students that come out from the second level. When it comes to language learning, we have difficulties. And I agree completely with Barbara on that. What we need to do is change. I, I, I'm more... Uh, fixated on not on the end of the system, the leaving search, but what we're doing before that. And what we're saying is that there should be a change of how we teach Irish from start to finish, from preschool the whole way up to third level. This should be based on the European Common Framework of Reference of Languages. Basically, that's a skills-based system. So you could, for example, be on a different level of your oral Irish compared to your written Irish. And this very much would be a flex- flexible system that could actually... Um, provide for those students who have learning difficulties. Instead of saying, we're not going to provide for you, we're not able to provide resources for you, we'd actually be saying, well, actually, why couldn't they do oral Irish, for example, the whole way up to Leaving Cert and Mm -hmm. be assessed on that? Because there clearly is a problem if you have all of these students seeking exemptions. And if it all comes down to the points race and they see, well, if I do higher level maths and I focus my energy on that and my capacity, I'm going to get potentially an extra 25 points. You can see the logic of it, can't you, for students? Of course, as soon as you open the door of exemptions, obviously that that, that door is going to go wider and wider. What we're trying to say is what, and what the, the recent um, report that came from the Joint Directors Committee was that there needs to be a new system, a new approach to language teaching or language learning. And in that framework that I'm talking about, the CFR, um, you would also be able to include students coming late into the system because we're doing something that's creating division in our society as well. They were saying any students who come in and they're coming from various countries from around the world were saying, well, you're not going to learn Irish yeah, and, we're ex- and all the others are learning Irish. Yes, or so. we're expecting them to participate at a level that's very difficult for them because but they haven't learned Irish from it, the beginning. Exactly, and that's why you would actually, in the CFR system, you could start them off at the level A1, which is for beginners, and that they could actually um, proceed and do their Leaving Cert based on that 
level okay. and get whatever CAO points, whatever that goes along with that as well. So what we need is a more flexible approach. And when we talk about Wales as well, Wales is going to be two level for all students um, um, in, into the future on that CFO approach. So if we're going to take a good example, let's take it from Wales. OK, well, can I come back to you on that, Barbara, that perhaps we need to look at that, uh, at changing how we teach our uh, Irish and facilitating those students who maybe feel that their skill level isn't as good as somebody who's going in to do higher level Irish for Leaving Cert. I can't argue with that. I think that's an excellent idea. I've heard it uh, before and I would uh, really completely back up what has been said there. Um, But just coming back to the whole, you know, when is this going to happen if it's going to happen? This system that we have at the moment is broken and it's breaking everyone. Uh, It's breaking the hearts of the Irish teachers. It's breaking my heart as a teacher who still steps in and out of the classroom off Gaelga. Um, and, you know, we, we, we have to act now. We can't wait for another five years. This system is broken. It's not serving anyone. It's not serving our language. You know, I have been speaking about this for a while now, and it's always been with Irish best interests at heart. And it's I, the framework is a great idea, but there are lots of other things entangled and enmeshed in the learning of Irish which have to do with emotion, history, colonialised, you know, colonial, colonialism. Um, so, you know, there, 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 it's, it's not as easy as just kind of making it the same as learning French or German or Spanish, because there is that emotive uh, content to mm-hmm. it as well. well. When you say when you walk into the classroom, it breaks your heart. But what do you mean? Well, it breaks my heart to see people in a classroom who don't want to be there and who are trying everything they can to get out of being in the classroom studying Irish because they are trying to get points to go on to third level to do a course that's going to qualify them for a good job. And like, why do maths get an extra 25 points? Uh, Why don't Irish? Mm -hmm. I, I don't see why they don't. Does it break your heart, Julian, to hear that description of what it's like in a classroom at higher level? It, it breaks my heart and I have many, many parents get in, t- in contact with me every time I do an interview and I'm sure they'll be in contact with me afterwards and I can hear the broken hearts and what really, um, I suppose, um, and I agree with Barbara there, that really puts me, puts me out is that We've realised that this problem has been a problem for many years. You know, going back to the 2011 election, for example, it was something that was brought up during that general election. And since then, we haven't solved the problem. What? Us? That doesn't sound right. Julian Despawn, General Secretary of Cunra Nagwelga there, who, along with Barbara Ennis, Principal of Alexandra College in Milltown, Dublin, we're on today with Claire Byrne discussing whether or not making Irish optional after the junior cert would be a good or a bad thing. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shuradon. Don't forget, you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.